Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Then uh, a lot of the kind of binary thinking and structures that our mind's always making um, just start to fall away. And you start to feel held by the breathing. And then this feeling begins to happen where the meditation practice itself feels fresh. And this always makes me feel better because depending on the season, I'm really focused on how I feel based on the season. Um, you know, we can start to get into the whole idea of summer, the idea of summer leaving. But also to be able to practice in a way where every moment is fresh. So uh, I encourage you, you know, some weeks I don't do offer too much instruction. It's just nice to just be sitting but, but I encourage you, when you hear the instruction, even if you have some sophisticated meditation practice that you've been working on for years, just to try and take in the instruction in a fresh way. And um, these days, I think, maybe because it's September, um, maybe because my life is really busy right now, uh, my partner's pregnant, my son has lice, I have poison ivy. <laughs> um, uh, there's a lot of laundry to do. Um, uh, it's really important to, to come to our practice and to just let that stuff kind of be there. It doesn't go away, but to also drop into that place where we're fresh and we're alive. And to see that uh, the breath is always fresh. And the mind, some part of the mind, really resists that freshness, just wants to be in our ideas of summer ending. Same way, it's Tuesday. It's 8 p.m., 2012. And the Jewish holiday is the second day of the year. Second of Tishrei. The year is 5,773. And none of us might agree on actually how we know that it's Tuesday, how we know it's 8 p.m. All that is all also just conceptual constructs that we superimpose on our experience. But one thing it seems we can agree on is that right now we're not in the past and we're not in the future. We're here in this very contingent way. Um, and in some ways, that's all we can really know. We can know that we're here together. We can know what it's like to be here together. But we can't know too much else. We don't know what's going to happen when we leave here tonight. 
we don't know what we're going to hear tonight. And um, those things that have happened to us in the day or in our lifetimes can't really be rearranged again in a new way. So what I'm saying is really the core of how the Buddha taught. The Buddha these days is often described as a philosopher. But actually, the Buddha thought of himself as a doctor uh, many times in uh, the Buddha's early teaching, he describes himself as a doctor, not as a philosopher. And he doesn't really teach ideas, but he teaches a method. And the method is to clarify for ourselves uh, what's meaningful in our lives, where there is attachment in our lives, and how we can be free. That's the method. And the Buddha also thought that because of culture, because of biology, because of genetics and so on, we're going to suffer. And also that the way we suffer can be the material we use to be awake. Um, Most of us, we don't think we are philosophers. We don't think we have a philosophy about life. But actually, on a little more examination, we see that we have all kinds of ideas uh, which allow us to have meaning in our lives and also which shut down our lives. Um, Our sense of who we are is um, something we learn from school, from our parents, from all, all aspects of society. Um, I don't know if anyone has this experience. Sometimes you're listening to the radio, uh, maybe the CBC, and they replay an old broadcast. This happened a few times this week. I don't know if it's an anniversary or something. So I was hearing these old broadcasts on the CBC. And, and then you hear how people talked 60 years ago. And... Like, we don't experience ourselves like that. And in a way, this is very much in keeping with what the Buddha was seeing in his time. In in the Buddha's time, you were born into a caste, you were born into a class, and there was this sense of reincarnation. So that your life was fixed, it was fated, you had a destiny. And that destiny was arranged well before your present life. And if you were born into a certain caste, there were certain limits to what you could do in this life. And there were certain limits to what kind of spiritual attainment you could achieve. And there were limits to how you were reborn. And what's quite radical about the Buddha's teaching is the Buddha didn't so much have ideas, I was just saying he was not a philosopher, but he had like anti-ideas. And one of his anti-ideas was that a person is not really destined or doesn't have to be destined or sculpted by his or her caste or even by his or her gender. So one of the things the Buddha did if you wanted to study with him is you had to shave your head 
and you had to wear robes. So that the first thing someone noticed about you was not your gender or your caste. This is a very radical social experiment. Because there was a sense at the time of the Buddha that your true life began way before you were born. And you didn't have uh, so much control. And the Buddha is saying something radical culturally, but also psychologically, that actually the self is very much uh, a construct in the same way that Tuesday night is a construct. Or saying right now it's 8.15 is a construct. In the same way that listening to old CBC broadcasts show us that we actually can perceive our lives in ever-changing ways without getting frozen, without getting stuck. The other interesting thing is that people were ready to hear this. If people weren't ready to hear this, there would be no Buddha that we talked about now. There was something going on in the culture at the time that people were ready to hear this promise that the Buddha offered that you could be free. And that freedom is related to this method of what the Buddha called bhavana. The word bhavana is the word for meditation practice that the Buddha uses. And it's an interesting word because the word bhava literally means to become. And the Buddha said that the act of meditation is an act of actually becoming who you are. The freedom to be who you are. The Buddha is saying that a person is a subject and not an object. That we experience ourselves as an object and not as a subject. We are an object to our own subjectivity. So that as we create a sense of self, it becomes this thing we begin to believe in and relate to, as if it exists. Um, All that is is a prelude to... Carl Jung. Because the second half of the essay we're studying, Carl Jung is going to take on this notion of the self also. From a Buddhist perspective, we arrive at seeing how what we think of as our personality is a construct, but we arrive at it not through a philosophy. It's not something that gets explained, but more it's something that's revealed through practice. You put in the weeks, you put in the months, you put in the years, and what's revealed as these constructs you have about yourself start to fall away is that the self is not really what you think it is. It can't be what you think it is, ever. Practice is like this too, right? I don't know if anybody ever gets this way where they actually come up with a theory about what their practice is. Oh, well, well, practice is this. My life is this. We do this with others, right? I do this with Stephen Harper. You know, whenever when I open the newspaper, I want to read something negative about Stephen Harper. It just gives me a good feeling, you know. 
And then uh, sometimes you see just little moments where you can see a certain photo of him and you think, oh, well, maybe he's a good father. Or maybe he's, like, maybe Rob Ford is like this great coach. You know? Is this, what does he coach? Football? Maybe he's like this great coach, you know? And, and so there's these ways where we get so stuck in our view of what a self is. Not just ourselves, but others also. It's good to see this with your enemies. So, now Jung is going to take a very similar route. In, he's going to try and tackle this question that at the time was not being discussed in psychology and in medicine which is, what is the self that's being treated? And what does it even mean to treat a self? And if we don't know what a self is, how can we treat it? And he's going to start talking about a self also in this positive way, where the self is bhavana, the self is a becoming. The self is something that's cultivated, something that's permeable, something that's changeable. So I photocopied for you the second half of the essay. Uh, if you don't have it in front of you, then um, share with a partner. And maybe we can just read together. Lori, do you, do you want to just start maybe just reading out loud the first couple paragraphs? Yeah. Sure. Do you have a good reading voice? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So let's just follow along with, with Lori. The function of the unconscious. There is a destination, a possible goal, beyond the alternative stages dealt with in our last chapter. That is the way of individuation. Individuation means becoming an individual. And insofar as individuality embraces our innermost, last, and incomparable uniqueness, it also implies becoming one's own self. We could therefore translate individuation as coming to selfhood or self-realization. The possibilities of development discussed in the preceding chapters were, at bottom, alienations of the self, ways of divesting the self of its reality in favor of an external role or in favor of an imagined meaning. In the former case, the self retires into the background and gives place to social recognition. In the latter, to the auto-suggestive meaning of a primordial image. Maybe I should just explain what that means. The auto-suggestive... <laughs> what does he say? The auto-suggestive meaning of a primordial image. This is just a term that he uses a lot. So what he's saying here is on the one hand, the self actually loses its power when it becomes either a function of the collective, so that's like just going along with the flow, right? And this is something Jung was always struggling with. Like, why do some people just have this experience of going along with the flow and they don't develop any kind of neuroses that, 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 that stops them, right? Does, has anyone had this thought? <laughs> why is it so easy for them, you know? Uh, it was easy in high school for them too um, and on the other hand the self also loses its power 
when it's in the grip of what he calls primordial images. So what he's referring to is in the last chapter, when someone's so much in the grip of a projection, or so much in the grip of the unconscious, that they lose themselves. So he's, he's sort of setting out this spectrum, which is really interesting, which I think if we had more time also, again, I think really relates to his experience of his parents. Where on the one hand, you have this father who's just going along with the flow, going along with what the church wants and so on. On the other hand, you have the mother uh, who he experiences um, as someone who's just in the grip of sickness all the time in the grip of her dreams and in the grip of illness and never really shows up as a person never really experiences his mother or father as a person who's the person there so this is what, what Jung is saying about the self that it's it sort of like it gets subsumed by either just like collective values or you know um, the unconscious okay keep going In both cases, the collective has the upper hand. Self-alienation in favor of the collective corresponds to a social ideal. It even passes for social duty and virtue, although it can also be misused for egotistical purposes. Egoists are called selfish, but this, naturally, has nothing to do with the concept of self as I am using it here. On the other hand, Self-realization seems to stand in opposition to self-alienation. This misunderstanding is quite general, because we do not sufficiently distinguish between individualism and individuation. Individualism means deliberately stressing and giving prominence to some supposed peculiarity rather than to collective considerations and obligations. But individuation means precisely the better and more complete. Oh, is it missing a page? Yeah, and more complete fulfillment. Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you missing a page? Yeah, but I got okay. some. Okay. Anna. Okay. Okay. So, um. Continue? Yeah. But individuation means precisely the better and more complete fulfillment of the collective qualities of the human being since adequate consideration of the peculiarity of the individual is more conducive to a better social performance than when the peculiarity is neglected or suppressed. The idiosyncrasy of an individual is not to be understood as any strangeness in his substance or in his components, but rather as a unique combination or gradual differentiation of functions and faculties which in themselves are universal. Every human face has a nose, two eyes, etc., but these universal factors are variable, and it is this variability which makes individual peculiarities possible. Okay, so let's stop there. So, 
What Jung's trying to get at here is he's trying to make a case for eccentricity, if you cut to the chase. Um, Here's someone whose studies were primarily at the Bergolzi Institute, which was pretty much the worst mental asylum uh, in Europe at the time. A horrendous place. And Jung was working with people with schizophrenia. And one of the things he was really interested in was when somebody has a psychosis, um, it seems like the unconscious is uh, moving forward in a way to try and get the ego to uh, listen to it. No matter how overwhelming, no matter how traumatizing, no matter how awful. And so Jung started to get this idea that maybe the, the core job of... Uh, talking about the ego as just trying to manage the unconscious wasn't a model that really worked because it didn't make the unconscious meaningful. So he starts to change this idea of the self and separate it from the ego. This is very important. So that for Jung, the self is not the ego and the ego is not the center of the self, actually. The self includes the ego, but the ego is only a very small part And in making the self much bigger than just the ego, he's saying a healthy self has to include what the unconscious wants of it. And then he gives a case. We're just going to jump ahead. Um, uh, This is on page 176. uh, An example of a boy who had this remarkable way of swallowing his tongue by pressing it back into his throat. And then he says, a fact quite new and unknown to me at the time. Um, Then, at one point, the boy gives him some history, or, sorry, the man gives him some history and says, as a boy, uh, often in his mind, he had the idea that he could take his own life. And Jung goes through a whole list of this man suggesting that as a boy, he remembers all these different ways he could take his own life. But when he pursued any of them, none of them really could work. So then he thought that one way he could take his own life would be just to swallow his tongue. Because then if he could block his throat, then he wouldn't be able to breathe. So he started developing this way of teaching himself how to swallow his own tongue. And then this becomes a neurosis and eventually leads to a psychosis, which puts him in a hospital as a man. So Jung is doing the same maneuver he did with the dream last week, or two weeks, I think last week, where he's saying the details of what's happening with the tongue and the significance of the tongue is actually not as important as just recognizing that the unconscious is trying to move forward to help regulate the self. Mm-hmm. So this is where he's very different than Freud, right? Freud would go deep into the personal history of this boy to find out what was going on in his family, that the dynamics that would try to make him want to take his own life. And Jung is saying, well, there's actually some deeper kind of soulful thing going on here where what's interesting is just the act of wanting to take your own life. Um, and then Jung says... Um, the great, this is uh, paragraph 272, 
The great question now is, in what do these unconscious processes consist? And how are they constituted? Naturally, so long as they are unconscious, nothing can be said about them. But sometimes they manifest themselves, partly through symptoms, partly through actions, opinions, effects, fantasies, and dreams. Aided by such observational material, we can draw indirect conclusions as to the momentary state and constitution of the unconscious processes and their development. We should not, however, labor under the illusion that we have now discovered the real nature of the unconscious processes. In other words, he's saying, like, you can't figure out just from the tongue what the real nature of the unconscious is. He's trying to separate the symptom from just an act. We never succeed in getting further than the hypothetical as if. This is a pretty radical thing to say at the time. Um, do you want to... Let's have someone else read Rose. Do you want to read? No mortal mind. No mortal mind can plumb the depths of nature, nor even the depths of the unconscious. We do know, however, that the unconscious never rests. It seems to always be at work. For even when asleep, we dream. There are many people who declare that they never dream, but the probability is that they simply do not remember their dreams. It is significant that people who talk in their sleep mostly have no recollection either of the dream which started them talking or even of the fact that they dreamed at all. Not a day passes, but we make some slip of the tongue or something slips our memory, which at other times we know perfectly well. Or we are seized by a mood whose cause we cannot trace, etc. <coughs> These things are all symptoms of some consistent unconscious activity which becomes directly visible at night in dreams, but only occasionally breaks through the inhibitions imposed by our daytime consciousness. Right. So, so these deeper patterns that we need to listen to show up in small neuroses, show up in dreams, or if they're not paid attention to, get so big that they show up as psychosis. Okay? So Jung's developing this idea that if the self is like this ocean with all of these patterns in it that we're supposed to be listening to, um, what happens is when a pattern emerges that doesn't give attention and gets continually repressed, it actually starts to develop its own form. And that form can actually become so specific that it develops its own personality. Okay? So let's say there's some part of you. Let's translate this to our own life. There's some part of you that you're not giving attention to. Mm -hmm. Some, you know, urge or uh, some uh, desire that you have, some dream that's unfulfilled and you don't give it attention over and over and over. Well, he says, some people, nothing happens. I don't know why. <laughs> but some people, and, some, and somewhere in this essay, he calls it higher people. <laughs> and some people, the higher people, um, start to notice that if you don't give it attention, it actually starts to kind of like compost, right? It starts to smell. It starts to... Um, uh, uh, self-organize into a new vibrant system and then that system can actually become self-aware 
So that system that's been split off can actually develop its own ego. Uh-huh. It's just like we have these parts of ourselves sometimes that are so split off, they can only live in certain ways. Yeah? And they actually seem like separate personalities. And this becomes how Jung starts thinking of psychosis and schizophrenia, is that this is when there have been split off aspects of the personality that actually have developed their own ego. And he thinks that whole thing is still happening within a self. Simone. I was just thinking of um, the great comedy about this. Some people might know how to get ahead in advertising. Oh. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't know. Yeah. No. It's a comedy about a guy who works in, a, in an advertising company and he has to make a cream for a boil. Uh-huh. And he eventually grows this boil, and the boil turns into another character that fights with him and competes with him. Right. So he's actually split. And it's a very funny yeah. description of how a disowned aspect could take over. Yeah, like, for sure. A person's life and personality yeah. and we have it. Yeah. And it's like the way all of us, we. Um, if there's some area of life that we're not giving attention to, and you keep pushing it away and pushing it away, or some people just stop pushing away and they just organize their life away from it, um, it develops a personality. And it will show up in you in physical symptoms, in dreams, in all kinds of ways. And if it's not given sufficient attention, according to Jung, um, it actually develops its own ego. Which is very interesting. And so for Jung... A healthy self has to include that. So it's risky. Uh, now my favorite paragraph of the whole chapter, paragraph 274. We could just study this one for a month. Um, Lori, do you want to read? Lori, number two. So far as our present experience goes, we can lay it down that the unconscious processes stand in a compensatory compensatory relation to the conscious mind I expressly use the word compensatory and not the word contrary because conscious and unconscious are not necessarily in opposition to one another but complement one another to form a totality which is the self according to this definition the self is a quantity that is supraordinate to the conscious ego. It embraces not only the conscious, but also the unconscious psyche, and therefore, so to speak, a personality which we also are. It is easy enough to think of ourselves as possessing part souls. Thus we can, for instance, see ourselves as a persona without too much difficulty. But it transcends our powers of imagination to form a clear picture of what we are as a self. For in this operation, the part would have to comprehend the whole. There is little hope of our ever being able to reach even approximate consciousness of the self. Since, however, much we may make conscious, there will always exist an indeterminate and indeterminable amount of unconscious material which belongs to the totality of the self. Hence, the self will always remain a superordinate quantity. Let's do that again. Angela? 
So far as our present experience goes, we can lay it down that the unconscious processes stand in a compensate, compensate, compensate. It's such a strange word. It's a funny word. Compensatory. Compensatory relation to the conscious mind. I expressly use the word compensatory <laughs> and not the word contrary because conscious and unconscious are not necessarily in opposition to one another. They complement one another to form a totality, which is the self. So this is really interesting, right? So for Freud, and I think we still work with this model, that, that the self sits above the unconscious, right? And in a way, the ego mediates between what's conscious and what's unconscious, and therefore determines what a self is. The self is totally conscious, and the unconscious is somehow below the self. And there's this place where the self and the unconscious touch, which we call the subconscious. But Jung is saying, this this doesn't make sense, actually. That unconscious and conscious are both the self. That the self includes both the conscious and the unconscious. But then he gets into this problem. Because he's just said in the first part of the essay that unconsciousness goes on forever. You can't get to the end of it. So suddenly he's got this problem saying, well, then what's the self? And now he's saying, well, then you can't say what a self is. Because a self is both conscious and unconscious. And if they both have no limit, then how can you say what they are? They're much, much bigger than the ego. The ego is just a very small part of the self. And this is all in an essay called Individuation, saying to wake up, to realize who you are, you need to realize that who you are includes an unconscious element that you can never understand. Now, this is the opposite for how we learn how to be successful human beings. Because we learn you should know who you are. You should know who you are and what you're good at. And Jung is saying, that's actually a recipe for suffering. And then he also takes some of his detractors to task and says, well, we're also, to understand that you're part souls, and what, what he's saying here is like multiple personality disorder, people say, oh, well, what you really are are just so many personalities. And Jung's saying, yes, that's easy to understand. But to actually individuate, to actually realize yourself, is to realize you're not just lots of personalities. You're also this whole collective, integrated unconsciousness that's unknowable. From a Buddhist perspective, this is the story of Bodhidharma. If you know this story. Bodhidharma is responsible for bringing Buddhism, the Dharma, from India to China. And when he gets to China, he meets Emperor Wu, who's the emperor of the province that he arrives in. And Emperor Wu is very interested in the teachings of the Buddha. So he hears of Bodhidharma's arriving in China and invites Bodhidharma to have tea. And as soon as Bodhidharma meets Emperor Wu, Emperor Wu gets right to the point and says to Bodhidharma, what is the core teaching of the Buddha? And Bodhidharma says, unholy nothing. And then the emperor says, well, then who's standing in front of me? And Bodhidharma says, I don't know. 
and then emperor will realize this person is expressing his practice. Imagine this happens to you. You're, you go home for, you, you go to Rosh Hashanah or whatever, and your family says, so what is this Buddhism all about? <laughs> well, if you start saying, well, the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, that's not what Bodhidharma says. Bodhidharma says, it's not holy. It's just this. And then someone else comes up to you, especially if you live in Toronto, so what do you do? <laughs> and, and, and Bodhidharma says, I don't know. He's not saying, I don't know. He's saying, I can't know. And all of us, we're, you know, we fall into this trap of trying to find the meaning of our life. What's the meaning of my life? And every time you go try and find a meaning, you get a new story. And it's meaningful for a little while. And Jung, like the Buddha, like Bodhidharma, is saying no. Actually, to realize yourself is to realize that the self is actually ungraspable. And in doing so, he turns psychology, especially of the time, completely upside down. Angela, do you want to finish? The- sure. According to this definition, the self is a quantity that is superordinate to the conscious ego. It embraces not only the conscious, but also the unconscious psyche, and is therefore, so to speak, the personality which we also are. It is easy enough to think of ourselves as possessing part souls. Thus we can, for instance, see ourselves as a persona without too much difficulty. But it transcends our powers of imagination to form a clear picture of what we are as a self. For in this operation, the part would have to comprehend the whole. There is little hope of our ever being able to reach even approximate consciousness of the self, since however much we we may make conscious, conscious, there will always exist an indeterminate and indeterminable amount of unconscious material, which belongs to the totality of the self. Hence, the self will always remain a superordinate quantity. Tom, do you want to read the next part? Sure. The unconscious process that compensates the conscious ego contains all those elements that are necessary for the self-regulation of the psyche as a whole. On the personal level, these are the, are the not consciously recognized personal motives which appear in the dreams or the meanings of daily situations which we have overlooked or conclusions we have failed to draw or effects we have not permitted, or criticisms we have spared our, of, we have spared ourselves. But the more we become conscious of ourselves through self-knowledge and act accordingly, the more the layer of the personal unconscious that is superimposed on the collective unconscious be diminished. So, I'll just interrupt you. So, yeah. This is really important. The more we become conscious of ourselves through self-knowledge, he's saying not just aware, but act accordingly, the more the layer of the personal unconscious that's superimposed on the collective unconscious will be diminished. In this way, there arises a consciousness which is no longer imprisoned in the petty, oversensitive, personal world of the ego, 
but participates freely in the wider world of objective interests. Isn't that beautiful? So he's saying, here's the good news. The good news is that what the ego wants to do is, let's actually tie it into meditation practice. So you're following your breath, and then what starts to happen is, like tonight, if you can keep staying at the beginning of your inhale, beginning of the inhale, over and over feeling it, what starts to happen is there's some part of consciousness that wants to come in and understand what's happening and then refer what's happening back to itself. So in a way, the ego is just its own attempt to understand itself, to see itself. The ego is always wanting to know what it is. So it'll take whatever's happening in the mind and create a self out of it. And this is why meditation gets so tricky as you start to concentrate more and more deeply is that the ego comes in and hijacks it constantly. So you get a sense of, oh, I'm really concentrated. And as soon as you say that to yourself, you've lost it. You see? But what Jung is saying here is that if you keep watching that, that that personalizing of everything, it starts to diminish, and a new consciousness arises. This is his language. A new consciousness arises that includes that and also includes the wider world. Very interesting. There's a physical yeah. feeling, though, at the beginning of the breath. So yeah. does, how does the physical feeling come into all of this? Because the physical feeling reinforces my sense of existence. I guess how, that's how I process it. Yeah. So the story about your physical feeling reinforces your sense of self. But the physical feeling and the continual anchor to the physical feeling goes underneath your story about it. But as it starts to go underneath, consciousness is very creative. Your mind is very creative. And it will find some way to own it and try and make money off it. (laughs) Somehow. Does that make sense? Sort of. Haven't we all had this experience before? It's like you're having a great time, and then you go, oh, I'm having such a great time. And then, like, it gets all sticky. (laughs) It just feels like. Yes. Something that happens in that sentence that I didn't expect, and I think I need a little bit of guidance here. Okay. I was actually expecting to hear that the more the layer of the collective unconscious that is superimposed on the personal unconscious would be diminished. And I'm surprised that anything that I'm interpreting the notion of collective unconscious in a practice. Well, so for him, the collective unconscious is that is that depth of the psyche that doesn't have in it elements that the personality has repressed. So the personal unconscious is the part of the part of our personality where we have pushed away, we've repressed or suppressed content 
into this kind of repository called the personal unconscious. And the collective unconscious is, is a, a, a deeper strata of memory that doesn't have in it kind of personal patterns. It has in it cultural, genetic, uh, mythological patterns. It's almost like the difference between like literature and myth. You know, literature is just like a corner of this wider pattern of mythology. Personal unconscious is just like your novel. Lana. Helps build concentration. Hmm. Choose anything. Well, no, don't choose anything. (laughs) Um, uh, We're just picking different objects, and they have different ways of concentrating us. For some people, it's staring at a candle or reciting a mantra. This happens to be the technique that I learned, and I think it works, so I teach it. But it doesn't matter what the object is so much. Okay, so so what's going on? What do you hear? So it, I, I know that this is a dense section, but it's very it's very interesting. I photocopy so you can take it home and keep working on it before the finale next week. <laughs> but I know we have to get through this kind of thorny section. Any questions, comments? How how does this relate to your your life? I'm confused, I think, because how you just explained the personal unconscious versus yeah. the collective unconscious. Yeah. Um, I was understanding, based on what we talked about before, that yeah. in the last two weeks, yeah. that um, the personal unconscious was also probably integrated in the collective unconscious. It is integrated. Right. Yeah. You can't really say there's such specifically different fears. Spheres, but he does think of them as layers. Like here, he uses the word layers, and they affect each other. Mm-hmm. Is that what you mean? Yeah, just that yeah. they're not—they're not like separate yeah. boxes. Yeah. yeah. And then I—I I think I still feel confused after Doug's question. I, I yeah. didn't feel like I understood. Yeah. So the the the. Doug, your question was this. The more the layer of the personal unconscious that is superimposed on the collective unconscious will be diminished. So that's, again, that... that He's talking in a very confusing way, I think, about that part of the ego that is constantly um, kind of acting in a top-down way with the collective unconscious. Yes. I think it makes sense in this part, so let me try and see that. Yeah. I think what I'm, it's the word collective that had me steered in the wrong direction. Yeah. I think what I think you're suggesting, what he means by collective unconscious, is what I would regard as common knowledge but privately held. Okay. So, in other words, this is knowledge that might be societally or communally known that we might regard as cultural, but it's privately held by the individual, and that would be regarded as. No, it's not known, it's unconscious. Somewhere, but it's not of the individual's um, uh, generation. The individual didn't make it, it's somehow 
It's timeless. Yeah. It's ahistorical. Yeah. Uh, as you, last week, Jung said, it's the psychic part of. He didn't use the word genetics. I don't remember what he said. Do you remember this? Did it, did it, was it genetics? Is that what he said? Down. I don't know if that's what he said. Here's what he says, uh, 1920. The conscious personality is more or less arbitrary segment of the collective psyche. It consists in a sum of psychic factors that are felt to be personal. And he says... The collective unconscious contains the whole spiritual heritage of human's evolution, born anew in the brain structure of every individual. Fantasies, including dreams of a personal character which go back unquestionably to personal experiences, things forgotten or repressed, and can thus be completely explained by individual Anamnesis. Fantasies including dreams of an impersonal character, which cannot be reduced to experience in an individual's past and cannot be explained as something individually acquired. All these images undoubtedly have their closest analogs in mythological types. These cases are so numerous that we're obliged to assume the existence of a collective psychic substratum. I have called this the collective unconscious. The collective unconscious, so far as we can say anything about it at all, consists of mythological motifs and primordial images, for which reason the myths of all nations are its real exponents. In fact, all of mythology could be taken as a sort of projection of the collective unconscious, We can therefore study the collective unconscious in two ways, either in mythology or in the analysis of an individual. So you can either come at it through your individual life or you can come at it from the bottom up. This make sense? Yes. Yes. So this may be a really easy or a really difficult or a really dumb yeah. question, yeah. but here I am. Uh, so, can you can you clarify how does the understanding of the collective consciousness that yeah. itself is bigger than the ego, that yeah. I have consciousness, self-consciousness, and whatnot, yeah. how can that make me happier? Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> yeah. This is what I was actually going to, to say that, okay, so what's Young's method here? Because we were talking yeah. about Bhavana, right? Yeah. So what I see yeah. him saying here is that, um, that it's self-knowledge, right? He's saying that basically we've got everything here, all the elements necessary for self-regulation. Yeah. That sounds pretty good to me. Yes, know? except how did he define the self? So he's using the term of self-knowledge. 
Yeah. And then what does he say the self is? And that was going to be my question. So is he saying that we need to look at these not consciously recognized personal motives, etc., meaning of daily situation, what he lists here? Is that what we're supposed to look into to find... Uh, he says, the more we become conscious of ourselves through self-knowledge and act accordingly, mm-hmm. the more then we get access to this layer, which is underneath the personal. Is that where he's telling us to look? Next question. <laughs> <laughs> Someone who hasn't had a chance. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm trying to understand how um, we, when you say we push away, so we have a deep desire wants that we push them away and then yeah. they take on a personality of their own. Yeah. I'm trying to understand an example of that. And also, is that in subconscious? Is that we never really know that? Or is that... Yeah. I got an example. I just, okay. Well, I think the questions so far have been from people who weren't here the past two weeks. Right? So, I mean, just so you know, this has been a bit cumulative. <laughs> Which basically means you have to come next week. <laughs> We're going to talk about happiness next week. Um, I, I feel like I want to let Jung speak instead of my interpretation of Jung. So listen to what he says here. Uh, this is from 1918. Take as an example a businessman who takes too great a risk and consequently goes bankrupt. If he does not allow himself to be discouraged by this depressing experience, but undismayed keeps his former daring, perhaps with a little salutary caution added, his wound will be healed without permanent injury. But if, on the other hand, he goes to pieces, abjures all further risks, and laboriously tries to patch up his social reputation within the confines of a much more limited personality, doing inferior work with the mentality of a scared child in a post far below him, then technically speaking, he will have restored his persona in a regressive way. Formerly, perhaps he wanted more than he could accomplish. Now he does not even dare to attempt what he has in it, what he has it in him to do. So he's saying, what is this part of us that takes a risk and then something goes wrong and then instead of actually being open to the whole process of stuff that emerges, grief, fear, like think of all, has anyone here ever tried a business and it hasn't worked? And he gives an example of a businessman who then goes back into his persona of trying to take these risks in a position below what he's capable of and become scared and confined in this smaller world. This is this really simple example he gives among many here, where he's trying to show what happens when a neurosis occurs, or fate brings about something difficult. And instead of opening to the teachings that are available, that are trying to help regulate the psyche. Because he's always saying the unconscious is self-regulating. It's compensatory. Instead, we go into the persona and just try to keep going forward in this small version of ourselves. This is what creates unhappiness. Now, I also want to say that, like the Buddha, he doesn't talk about happiness. 
the goal is not happiness for Jung. The goal is freedom. And freedom from a Buddhist perspective and a Jungian perspective is not dependent on feeling a certain way. So in this way, we couldn't talk about a Jungian path to happiness or a Buddhist path to happiness because neither of those methods talk about happiness. Popular books might say, the Buddhist path to happiness and the Dalai Lama's on the cover all <laughs> like, you know, we really want to be. But actually, uh, they don't talk about happiness. And I think most of us, you know, happiness very much depends on how we're feeling. And for Jung, uh, to really be in tune with the kind of groundless experience that our li- that the self really is, or like I said earlier, to, to experience yourself as the ocean, is not to be happy or unhappy. It's to be able to, to, to be the waves. And some people hear that and think, well, this is not for me, this is pessimistic. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know if you touched on this last week. Um, I'm wondering about that thing you mentioned the first week about Kalyan going a little bit mad. Yeah. Um, was he able to achieve that freedom in his own practice, or was that um, was he struggling with that? Like, was he able to do that, or maybe was going crazy freedom? Well, what I was hoping to do next week, and it keeps changing. But my goal next week was to uh, read a whole sequence of dreams he had. And then he makes this decision one day, sitting at his desk, that he's going to let the floor drop out underneath him. And he's going to drop into the collective unconscious. It's just this decision he makes. He's sitting at his desk. Things have fallen apart with Freud. He's having all of these really intense dreams where he's losing his mind, actually. His mind. His persona. His persona comes crashing apart. And it's followed by these really awful dreams. And then he sits at his desk one day, and I think meditators have to do this at some point. To say, okay, I'm going in. Let's see what's there. And there's actually some points, I think, in our practice where we have to say, what is the mind running away from? Why is it so busy? What's underneath this? I mean, for some people, that's really motivating, is to say, I sit, I'm anxious. Why so much anxiety? I want to know. I don't want to be happy. It's not about being happy, but what's underneath this? What am I made of? What, what's structuring my life? What's beneath this low-grade hum of anxiety that's always in the background? And Jung drops in. And so next week, that's what I want to talk about, is two years where he locks himself at home, and he starts painting, and he stops writing. And he keeps an eight... Uh, at the end of it, it's a 1,300 words... A 1,300-page journal, just of dreams, and then hundreds and hundreds of paintings. And that's what he has to do, he says, to listen to this calling that's calling him away from the persona, away from his persona. 
And how many of us are willing to do this? How many of us are willing actually to live the life that we're being called to live? How many of us are like dancing around, can't get to my cushion, instead of saying, I don't want to look, I'm scared, and I want to investigate being scared? How many of us can say, I'm so anxious, I want to start to like have a relationship to the anxiety so I can actually know what's my life under that? And I think some of us, it's just... There's a part of us that's so caught in our persona, we can't show up and be there for that. We can't do it internally. We can't do it with others. We show up with others in our persona. Always in our stuck, frozen. So that's what I want to explore next week. Uh, And we had to kind of get through this thick part to to get there. Uh, Yes, Simone. So in a Jungian way, we would say, as we drop in, happiness is just a byproduct, not a kind of goal. And from a Buddhist perspective, you say, when you drop in, the byproduct is compassion. Right? There's this kind of sense of this shared humanity. When you're actually yourself, um, you're really touched by the pain of others. Does it make you happy? I don't know if it makes you happy. But it's freeing to feel others in a deep way. To be yourself in a deep way. Pilar? No, the only thing that I, that I miss here is that a lot of, I love the word process and revelation. And emotional revelation, I believe that it happened a lot through relationships. Yeah. And that in order to that you need to create certain conditions and in order to investigate your the part of your soul that you have been pressed you Yeah. That you want to kill for that. Yes. So the the idea of relationship as being what structures the personality comes in the fifties at the end of Jung's life with the work of Winnicott. And then when the feminists get hold of Winnicott, the Americans get hold of Winnicott. Uh, but it's not there yet. No. No, Jung doesn't really speak that way. But interestingly, you could also say, maybe Jung deciding to kind of, maybe Jung's falling apart 
actually happened because of a falling apart of his relationship with his parents and then with Freud. And you see this a lot. I mean, we all see this in our lives. Like, how many of us, when we've really fallen apart, have fallen apart at the end of a relationship? (laughs) I mean, I think the relationship between the ends of relationships and mental illness is, is so connected. The bottom falls out. So maybe we can get into that next week a little. Yes. Um, <clears throat> um, I guess I'm interested in the development of psychosis and schizophrenia in particular. Yeah. yeah. How, does Young speak about um, like early onset schizophrenia in younger mm-hmm. children and how Young writes. Does it, is it all transferable yeah. regardless or else of age? And how, how does that work? I can understand the business yeah. person example, but you don't see six-year-olds with their lemonade stands in the apartment as a drive. Yeah. Um, it's beyond the night to get into it tonight. But I recommend you checking out what Jung wrote about schizophrenia. And he has a really thick book called Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious where he just writes about the patients he worked with in the hospital and about them, about their dreams, about how he worked with them. And then you can get a sense of it. But if I start going into it now, it'll be too late. Okay, one last comment, and then we'll call it a night. Yes? I don't know, it sounds strange, but I refer to these constraints and constructs very much as a physical history of the time just like art is always a reflection of the time yeah. and I, it seems to me and actually coming from Switzerland growing up yeah. I can understand a lot of even the examples yeah. just like it would have been when I grew up yeah. which may not be the same now because we live in a different society mm-hmm. and yet I find that the self which is much more and much wider uh it, it, it's the archetypes, it's the, yeah. the, the collective con- conscious, all through yeah. Buddhism. Yeah. I find it covers all that, so mm-hmm. that's why it, it's beyond those boundaries of the yeah. of the constructs that yeah. we all start out with. Yeah, and that's for sure. Where I find the connection yeah. with the self of, of through Buddhism, yeah. which doesn't have those limits of our Western yeah. uh, society mm-hmm. or the created. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's why I started tonight just talking about the Buddha and saying he wanted to be free. Yeah. And he knew the path was not through philosophy. And I love philosophy. I, I love a good intellectual argument. Put together a good logic and I'm there. Really good, tight argument. But that's not going to help you realize who you are. Not through books. And to start to drop into what Jung is calling the self is to drop into the ocean. Is to drop from your chair and say, okay, I'm going in. And now that's the heroic version, (laughs) I think. For, for me, I'm not so interested in that. I'm interested in the gradual version. 
which is the beginning of your inhale. Just dropping into that over and over in a concentrated way. And then to see all the parts of ourselves that try and get in the way and wreck that. What are we so scared of? Why do we hold back? Why do we love our anxiety so much? Um, We're going to go till 11. (laughs) It just struck me. Okay, last comment. I mean, there's the three characteristics you read in Buddhism dukkha and impermanence and not self. And just how, I mean, the Buddha, a starting point really is is suffering. If you go through the Four Noble Truths, Mm -hmm. but then Jung is, and you get to the same things, and Jung is doing it like not self and getting to everything else. So it's just, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting about the Buddha and Jung is they were doctors. <laughs> they were doctors trying to understand suffering. And what did they start with? Their own. Right? It's the archetype of the wounded healer. So. Let's stop that before we get free or something. <laughs> So, let's finish.